Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're working our way through the history of films that rage against the machine. Today, we're discussing the 2003 film Kill Bill Volume 1. I'm your host, a man who wants a medal every time I manage to wiggle one of my toes. My co-host is Guy, who knows 20 ways to kill you with a cereal box. Yeah, and 30 ways to teabag you afterwards. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, what's uh, your background or experience with the Kill Bill franchise? Um, I watched them quite a while ago. Uh, some, I, I don't know exactly when, several years ago, that I... Uh, I got a kick out of both the movies. I didn't remember a whole lot of details about them because I had only seen. Plus these, at least this first one, is very action-heavy, more so than I think most Quentin Tarantino movies are. <laughs> or or most movies. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I think I probably didn't remember a lot of it because action isn't something that sticks in my mind as much hmm. as dialogue does. But that said, it's uh, it's an enjoyable it's an enjoyable movie. So uh, I think. Oh, you're spoiling be... your. <laughs> your I didn't say watching. it was worth watching. I just said it was enjoyable. <laughs> but yeah, I well, guess the one does sort of imply the other. <laughs> what surprised me was I thought I had watched the first film, Volume One. I knew I hadn't watched the second one. Mm-hmm. But when I sat down and actually watched it, I realized, no, I didn't see this. I've just seen so many things about it in a documentary I'll talk about in a moment everything, that I knew a bunch of things about it, but I had not actually watched the film. Yeah, so it, yeah. Was, it was interesting to actually watch it. I don't know if there's a word for, I thought I watched this, but I didn't. <laughs> probably there's some German word that's really long. No, probably. Now, one of the things I did watch that made me feel like I'd seen this is a documentary that I highly recommend. It's called Double Dare, and it's about the stunt woman for Uma Thurman. So her history was she did the stunts in Xena Warrior Princess for Xena. So this was in Australia or New Zealand, which wherever they filmed that. And... Once that series ended, she needed to find new work, right? So she came to the U.S. to to see if she could find stunt work. And this documentary follows her to the U.S. Mm. And you watch her. I mean, she's not getting work. She's frustrated. But she's also interacting with stunt people in L.A. And it's really fascinating to see that whole culture. Mm. And especially, I mean, kind of the second character of the film is a 60-something-year-old woman who has been a stunt person for her whole career and refuses to give it up. So a 60-something-year-old woman who's, you know, doing stunts is pretty amazing. Well, yeah, your bones get more brittle with age, don't they? Right, right. And then in the course of the film, and of course the people who put together the documentary didn't know this was going to happen, you know, when they started filming it, she got hired for Kill Bill to be Uma Thurman's stunt up, mm. which is probably one of the most, you know, prominent stunt double roles in the last, you know, few decades. There's there's no shortage of uh, stunts. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I I think is great about this documentary is, is they actually have the phone call where she got called to be told that she had been picked for the film. And they're like, well, you're going to be crashing through, you know, bookcases and this and that. (laughs) 
And as they're describing this, the things that most people would find horrific <laughs> or be like, wait, am I going to get hurt? Her face just lights up. <laughs> like she's so happy that she's going to be abused. <laughs> so I highly recommend it. I'm sure I'll re- I'm going to bring this up more as we go along in the future yeah. next couple podcasts. You said it's called Double Dare, right? Double Dare, yes. So we're doing something a bit different this time. Usually when we have a guest, we combine our discussion with them and our separate full walkthrough of the movie, which makes for often (laughs) rather long podcasts. (laughs) But this time we're talking about two movies, and also we're going to have two great guests. And if we have two guests in us, you can guarantee that discussion is going to go long. (laughs) So... We're going to do our two walkthroughs first and release those, and then we're going to do a separate discussion with our guests. <laughs> and then people who only want to listen to our guests can do that, and people who want to hear our full walkthrough and our bad jokes and et cetera can listen to everything. <laughs> so let's get into the movie. And one thing I'll say right up front is. There's a, what I'll call a thrilling audaciousness <laughs> to this movie, right? Which is mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino, you know, was a young director and he had done three films before this. It starts out somewhere in there saying this is Quentin Tarantino's fourth film. And he's clearly kind of, as we'll see, he's clearly kind of saying, look, yeah, I'm a young director and this is my fourth film, but I know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Everything about this and how it starts off to me is saying, look, I know what I'm doing. We're going to have fun. I'm going to throw everything I can into this. (laughs) And the wackiness starts in the opening frames. It's kind of confusing, especially if you're watching and streaming. You're like, wait, did I choose the wrong movie? (laughs) Because first, we get some kind of cheesy logo with Japanese characters and this big, you know, Shaw scope, like kind of, you know. Like um, CinemaScope or something. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what the hell is Shaw scope? <laughs> I have no idea. And then we get a really bad 1970s style uh, animation, our feature presentation where, you know, these words are kind of coming together and everything. And there's this sort of... um. I think they used a lava lamp background or something. Yeah, or like kaleidoscope or something. Yeah. yeah. Although I, I wanted, I want to point out that the music that accompanies this though is very, very funky. And, and I think Tarantino has used it in other movies because I looked it up a while back. So I must've seen it in some other movie. And the, the music is called Funky Fanfare and you can find it on <laughs> the full track on, uh, on YouTube. It's catchy as hell. So I, if you're looking for a little pick me up when you're in the middle of the day at work or something, (laughs) funky fanfare. And if you click the link in our notes, we will get a piece of that transaction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We don't do that kind of stuff. Um, so after this really weird, you know, kind of 1970, actually first, I mean, the Shaw scope thing is more like 1950s or 40s. And then mm-hmm. the our feature presentation is sort of 1970s. And then <laughs> I love this. And again, it's just part of saying, look, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Uh, <laughs> we get this quote 
on the screen, revenge is a dish best served cold. And then after that's been up for a while, it says old Klingon proverb. (laughs) (laughs) And just by, by referencing Star Trek and Klingons, it's just like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like doing. (laughs) (laughs) And now we see Uma Thurman in what we will realize is a wedding dress. I think she's in black and white at this point. So it's a little hard to tell what we're looking at, but she's on the floor. We're seeing her head very bloody and messed up, just really clearly in a bad situation. And then we see the feet of a man walking towards her. And he says, do you find me sadistic? And we don't see his face, by the way. Yeah, we don't see him at all. And he wipes her face with a handkerchief that has the word Bill imprinted on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says, you know, I'm not sadistic. And he tells her that at this moment, it's him and his most masochistic. So he's hurting himself by hurting her, I guess. And she says, Bill, it's your baby. And at that very instant that she says, baby, he blows her brains out. And we don't actually see the, you know, the... We don't see the brains, but we see some blood. (laughs) So when we did God Bless America, and in the first scene, you know, the guy shoots an infant Mm -hmm. and creates a flood of blood. And I complained about this. I said I did not like it. Yeah. So I look at this film, which is doing almost the same thing, right? I mean, in the very first seconds of the film, a woman's head is getting blown apart. Right. And Roger Ebert said about God Bless America, wow, even though he didn't like the film, he said, wow, what an opening. Mm-hmm. And my response would be, no, this is, is the opening. <laughs> I mean, this, I, like, it did, I mean, even though obviously it's upsetting to see, in the context of the film and the way it was executed, I love this, where I hate it. <laughs> yeah. I just want to bring up another case to be able to say, I hated God Bless America. (laughs) And it's all about how you set it up and how you do the context and everything, right? Mm -hmm. Now that her brains have been blown out, we could say the movie is over. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not. We have two movies to get through. So let's see how this goes. And now we have our next audacious thing, right? We get this title that says, The Fourth Film by Quentin Tarantino. So this is so audacious because he's both saying, yes, I'm a young filmmaker, but yes, I'm doing whatever I want here. And he's also acknowledging like there's an arc to a director mm-hmm. and his career. And this is where we're at in my career. And I've never, I've never ever seen a film that started out by making that kind of assertion, right? And by telling you which, which of his films it is. Yeah. <laughs> because even... I mean, it's audacious in part because saying this is my fourth film implies that you're important, right? Mm-hmm. So he's just putting it out there. I'm important. I have a career, and this is where I am in my career. It's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, you know, you better back that up. But, you know, yeah. Tarantino's one of the few people who it's turned out did back that up, right? <laughs> he went on to do other significant films. Oh, yeah. And now we get the song, Bang, Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down. And I didn't know this song, but I was so intrigued. I I actually (laughs) used my phone and had Siri tell me what the song was. (laughs) And it turned out it was sung by Nancy Sinatra. And it's just, it's an incredible song. And it's also so directly related to this story. Oh, yeah. My baby shot me. (laughs) (laughs) 
And now we get one of many things. We talked about this before. This is one of those films where you want to watch it a second time mm-hmm. because the second time you're going to understand a whole lot of stuff that just flew by you the first time. Right. And one of those is we get this really weird credit sequence, right? Uh, so the first five actors who are credited, each one has a big number next to the name, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. And we later learn this is going to be very significant in the story. (laughs) And then we get chapter one. And again, confusing because under chapter one, there's a two and the two is circled. It's like, well, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) And we will come to understand what that means. And now we see a house in suburban Pasadena, California. It's a very picket fence style thing, right? There's not an actual picket fence, but there's kids toys in the yard and the house is very cutely painted. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little suburban house. Yeah, and the woman who was shot in the first scene, but we don't know who she is yet, she rings the doorbell, and the woman of the house opens the door. And I'm going to mention here, one of the interesting things about this film is most of the main characters are women. I mean, it's, you know, it's a really interesting approach to this, especially an mm-hmm. action film. So the woman in the house opens the door, and it's Vivica Fox. Now, I did not know who Vivica Fox was, but recently I was watching, you know, I'm addicted to watching competition cooking shows on the Food Network and such. Vivica Fox was on The Worst Cooks in America. Oh, wow. So I I knew her more from being a bad cook than (laughs) (laughs) So her code name is Copperhead, and we're going to find out that a bunch of people in this film have code names, and they're all snake-related. And Uma Thurman's, who's the, you know, the main character we saw get shot in here, her code name is Black Mamba. And anyway, so she rings the doorbell, and Vivica Fox, you know, Copperhead, opens it, and we get a very tiny flashback of Uma Thurman being punched around at that wedding where she got shot. So in the present, she starts out by immediately punching Copperhead, you know, Vivica Fox. And they have a big, very loud and extended crashy fight in the living room and kitchen. It's kind of funny because, you know, with They Live, right, that five-minute fight was famous. (laughs) This movie is full of five-plus-minute fights, right? (laughs) (laughs) And also, by just starting out the movie with this fight where they're just throwing each other around the room, smashing into everything, you know, breaking all the glass, etc., you know, grabbing the butcher knives out of the kitchen. The movie is just saying, this is what this is, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so they both end up going after each other with butcher knives. And then, and this is the other what this is. It's just hilarious. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't always like Tarantino, but he is a genius. So they're fighting in the living room, and and there's, you know, a large window in the living room. And so behind them, we see a school bus show up outside, and it lets out Vivica Fox's daughter. And we saw earlier that there was all that kid stuff in the yard, right? So we yeah. knew that there were kids. And now <laughs> they both stop the fight. They put their knives behind their backs. The daughter comes in. Uh, she's all confused by the fact that the living room has been destroyed and there's glass everywhere. Yeah, the, the mother blames it on the dog. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, that stupid dog came in and did all this. And she's like, well, okay. Well. And then the mother says, you know, about Irma Thurman, this is an old friend of mommy's I haven't seen in a long time, <laughs> which is true. 
And the girl then tells Uma Thurman that she's four. This is one of those things that, again, makes more sense the second time you've seen it. Uma says she had a little girl once who would be about four now. We don't know what that means at this point. Mm. But Vivica Fox gets her daughter to go to another room while she talks adult stuff with Uma. (laughs) And then she and Uma declare a truce, and they go to the kitchen for some coffee. And in that process, we get a theme in the directing, which is when they're walking into the kitchen, Tarantino films them from above, uh, and you can see the walls and everything, right, as as they're walking through it. And and this is essentially saying, yeah, this is a set. Mm-hmm. This is a movie, right? I mean, he's just, it's almost like breaking the fourth wall, right? Right. And and he has some more obvious sets later on that, that still yeah, look good, yeah. but they also look like sets <laughs> yeah and it's just like okay this is what we're doing here we're making a movie and movies have set <laughs> and so uma tells vivica fox that she won't murder her in front of her child <laughs> she says it's mercy compassion and forgiveness that i lack not rationality <laughs> so I, I feel that way sometimes yeah vivica fox tries to apologize for you know being part of killing uma thurman and she says Uma has every right to want to get even. And this, I really like this. Uma explains that getting even <laughs> is not at all this. Getting even would involve killing her, her daughter, and her husband. <laughs> that would get them even. <laughs> so Vivica Vox says they can resolve this at 2.30 a.m. in a schoolyard where no one will be watching. And so they kind of have this agreement. It's a little bit like, and a lot of this, there's a lot of John Wick uh, things. Like John Wick was clearly very influenced by this, right? Yeah. And this is one of those things. Like we're going to have this agreement that this is when we'll fight. And then she starts putting together a meal for her daughter as she's kind of walking around and talking and everything. And at one point she gets a cereal box. (laughs) And it turns out she has a gun in it inside the cereal box. So she shoots at Uma through the cereal box, but misses. Uma has that cup of coffee. She drop kicks the cup of coffee at Vivica Fox. And then she pulls a knife from her side and throws it at her and sticks it in her chest, which kills her. So apparently, you know, people don't follow the rules. They made an agreement (laughs) when they would meet. (laughs) But I'll also say it is a good self-defense tip to have a gun in your cereal box. Oh, sure. Never know when you might need that. (laughs) As long as the person that you're planning to shoot hasn't seen this movie. Otherwise, (laughs) I know it's coming. Then it turns out that the daughter saw all this after all. And Uma has a really funny conversation with her. But the funniest part is she says, look, if someday you want to come after me, I'll be ready for you. <laughs> She's kind of, I think we're setting up, you know, Kill Bill Volume 3 or 4. Or <laughs> and then Uma goes outside and gets into a flamboyantly painted SUV slash truck thingy. I wasn't quite, I don't know, if, how would you describe that? It's. I mean, it's both a truck and an SUV as far as I can tell. Yeah, I uh, I didn't I didn't pay a lot of attention to the, the style of it beyond the, the color scheme. Uh, which was neat because it's like a bright yellow with a yeah. hot pink. And, yeah. but uh, That's why I called it flamboyant. <laughs> yeah. But I think it did have some kind of pickup truck bed on it. It might be like a truck with a crew cab or extended cab or something. 
That's right. True. So once she's inside this, she takes out a notebook and it has some names listed and each has a number beside it, which calls back to those credits we talked about where each, you know, these actors had a number beside it. You couldn't totally miss this. It's one of those watch it the second time things because mm-hmm. the first name is Oren Ishii, uh, whose code name is Cottonmouth. And that name is already crossed off. The first time, you probably don't even notice this <laughs> and don't know what it means. But the second time, it's very meaningful. Yeah. So Copperhead, who she just killed, is the second one. And she crosses that one off and drives away. And as she's driving away, we see that her keychain says Pussy Wagon, <laughs> which, again, seems a little bit odd. And now we get titles that say Chapter 2, The Blood-Spattered Bride. So we have a flashback here. And, and in fact, uh, Uma Thurman narrates this four years and six months earlier in the city of El Paso, Texas. What we see from above is coroners and cops examining the chapel where the wedding slaughter happened. And there's bodies all over the place. And Uma's in the center on the floor, obviously pregnant, blood all around her head. And outside, the head detective, presumably the sheriff of the area, we, we never really find out, arrives. <laughs> and it turns out that one of the cops there is his son, who he calls son number ones. Yeah. And uh, I, I think this is a, a reference to the old Charlie Chan movies. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think Charlie Chan would refer to his son as number one son. Uh, you know, so. I, I did not make that connection at all, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So the the father, the head detective, realizes this must have been a professional job. It's just way too clean for amateurs. And then he leans over, you know, the obviously pregnant Uma. And it's <laughs> a little weird contrast here because he talks about how beautiful she is, you know, her yellow-colored hair. He calls her a blood-spattered angel. Mm-hmm. And then, even though she's obviously dead, <laughs> she spits in his face. And he says to son number one, and now he changes his attitude to her, this tall drink of cocksucker ain't dead. <laughs> she was an angel, and now she's a cocksucker. Okay. <laughs> now we see her comatose in a hospital, and we hear whistling in the lobby. And Daryl Hannah, who is L. Very stylish, kind of a very white outfit. Very, I think it's white leather. Yeah, she's it's uh, she's got like a trench coat belt and buttons drawn on with black magic marker. <laughs> it's uh, I I don't remember that detail from the first time I saw the movie, which uh, yeah. I, I'm surprised. And I of don't. course, <laughs> the most prominent thing is she has an eye patch. You know, a white eye patch at this point. So she comes into the lobby also. She's wearing leather gloves, and she has an umbrella. And so she walks through the lobby. No one pays attention to her. She goes into a closet and dresses up as a nurse. (laughs) And then when she comes out, and this is just hilarious, her eye patch now has a red cross on it. (laughs) So obviously she didn't find that. (laughs) She didn't find that in the closet. She had to have brought it with her. (laughs) I'm a nurse. I have a red cross on my eye patch. (laughs) And also in that closet, she loads up a syringe with something red, looks nasty. <laughs> you know, well, in The Prisoner, you mentioned something about how most medications are clear. If it's colored, right. it's something bad for you. So this is colored red, so it must be bad for Yeah, you. red's not good. <laughs> so 
So she brings her loaded syringe to Uma's room. She puts it into the intravenous drip, and she's literally like half a second away from poisoning her when she gets a phone call. And it's also amusing. It shows you, even though I don't think of this as an old movie, the phone she pulls out, of course, is completely old compared to anything oh, yeah. we have now. And it's Bill on the other end. He has decided to abort the operation. His feeling is it would be wrong to kill Uma Thurman while she is in a coma. But if she wakes up from the coma, they can do all sorts of very terrible things to her. <laughs> yeah. So Elle is disappointed. She didn't like Uma. <laughs> yeah, he, he says something to the effect of that it would it would lower us, I think is what he said. Right. So. <laughs> so Elle is disappointed. She didn't like Uma. She was looking forward to killing her. But she follows Bill's instructions and she leaves. And as we'll find, four years later, <laughs> we see a mosquito land on Uma's arm and in a very visually graphic manner start to suck her blood. I don't know what all special effects were involved in this, but it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you see that proboscis, you know, go into her skin. <laughs> yeah. And this causes her to suddenly wake up. And, you know, she sits up. She has no idea where she is. So she flashes back to Bill pulling the trigger on the gun, and we get this fancy extreme close-up of the gun being fired, and it's very much like Edgar Wright, who did Shaun of the Dead and, you know, all that stuff with Simon Pegg, mm -hmm. where you have all these individual shots that last just a fraction of a second. And we see the gun being fired and the bullet leaving the chamber and fire coming out behind mm -hmm. it, which isn't really realistic, but is dramatic. And as she's remembering this, she sits up, she clutches her head, and she realizes she has a metal plate in her head where that bullet went through. Mm -hmm. And she kind of clinks on it a couple times, which is pretty yeah. dramatic. And then she's horrified to realize that her baby is gone, right? She was pregnant. She wakes up four years later. Her baby is gone. And she screams and cries in a very dramatic manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was well done. And one of the things I'll say about this movie is on the one hand, it's silly and funny and all this. But on the other hand, it has some very dramatic moments, I mm -hmm. mean, you know, that are pretty serious. Yeah. And now she hears whistling. And I don't know what the intent here is, but when we first saw Daryl Hannah, she was whistling. Mm -hmm. And now four years later, there's a hospital orderly walking through the hall whistling and I have to assume there was an there was an intent there to say whistling is bad, right? Because mm -hmm. Daryl Hannah whistled and this guy whistled. Could be, yeah. So he's coming to her room and she immediately fakes being comatose. You know, she gets back down and fakes being comatose. And it turns out this orderly has been selling her body to people who want to have sex with a comatose woman. Mm -hmm. And he has a customer here with him, and he explains the rules to the customer. He can't leave marks on her, but he can do anything else, including ejaculate inside her because nothing down there works anymore. <laughs> and I mean, and they go out of their way to make this a really, really ugly guy. And it's, it's a little bit like Thelma and Louise, right? That one guy, the one driver who is really, really obnoxious. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. kind of this person. <laughs> Unreal. I'd like to say unrealistically obnoxious. I'm sure there are a few people out there like this. Oh, yeah. So he says, you can't leave Mark Center, but you can do anything else. And you have 20 minutes, and I'll come back. And then he leaves. 
So this dude who's paying for this climbs on top of her and says she's the most beautiful woman he's going to sleep with today. So <laughs> apparently he's already been doing probably unsavory things. And I'm not quite clear what happens here because they kind of, you know, the camera moves around and cuts away and stuff, but she bites his lip and pulls. And somehow her biting his lip turns into him dying. (laughs) No, I think, I think maybe we don't see a part where she cuts his throat. There's a lot of blood around his throat, his upper chest. I don't know how she would have cut his throat, but okay. Yeah, so we don't really know, right? We just we just see bits and pieces here. But anyway, yeah. she you know <laughs> she does what she can, and he ends up on the floor with blood all over him, and she's covered in blood, and she gets out of bed, and this is something I really appreciate uh, because I'm thinking, look, she's been in bed for four years, so she can't move around and stuff, and that's actually what happens as soon as she gets out of bed, she falls down on the floor. Because her her muscles have atrophied for four years, right? And so she's helpless, and she's on the floor. But now she hears the orderly whistling. Now, there's nothing here that would imply that 20 minutes have passed, but that's what the movie is saying, like 20 minutes have passed, right? So maybe she spent 20 minutes with his lip and tongue, you know, killing him or whatever. What she does, hearing this whistling coming, is... She crawls over to the dude that she killed and she grabs a knife out of a holster and the orderly enters and all he can see is the dude's body on the floor and he's looking at that and he's shocked. And it turns out, and we have this very slow motion, (laughs) uh, zoom in on this, Uma is on the floor behind him and she slices his Achilles tendon. (laughs) And then, and which is very effective, right? I mean, you just can't walk once your tendon is gone. That's what I hear, yeah. (laughs) And then she drags his head to the door, right? Because she still can't get up or anything, so she's on the floor. I mean, it's still impressive she could drag somebody. I'm not sure that's realistic. But nonetheless, (laughs) she drags his head to the door, and she starts slamming the door into it while demanding to know where Bill is. And he says he doesn't know who Bill is. And then she has flashbacks from her coma of all this stuff this guy has done to her. And it turns out he, you know, he first introduced himself to her while she was in the coma as my name is Buck and I'm here to fuck. <laughs> and it turns out that his, his, uh, knuckles have fuck, uh, tattooed into them, which is a callback to night of the hunter and also um, yeah. do the right thing. Mm, yeah. Which was a callback to Night of the Hunters. And I think, <laughs> it's uh, just a weird little callback. I think Eddie in Rocky Horror Picture Show also had uh, those tattoos on his knuckles. Okay. Not sure, but I think. So she says to him, your name is Buck, right? And you came here to fuck, right? And then she smashes the door into his head one last time. <laughs> yeah. now, I hadn't realized it, but this line about Buck's name and his intention there is a little homage to it in Far Cry 3 uh, that I never, <laughs> I didn't never realized where it came from, but now I'm pretty I know. sure I played that, maybe <laughs> even with you, but I, I don't remember that line. Okay. So she pulls his car keys from his pocket and it's this really, you know, offensive pussy wagon keychain, right? There's a big <laughs> pink, like, pussy wagon. <laughs> and she finds a wheelchair and wheels herself to the parking garage. And she goes until she finds this very flamboyantly painted truck slash SUV, which we saw in a previous scene. 
in addition to the colors now we see, which we didn't see before, that on the back it has this huge pussy wagon <laughs> logo painted on it. So, yeah, he, you know, I'll at least give him this. He's he's out loud and proud, right? He's not hiding who he is. <laughs> so she pulls herself into the back seat of the pussy wagon. But, you know, she's still pretty much paralyzed. She's, she really can't do anything. And she stares at her toes and tells herself to wiggle your big toe, you know, but nothing happens. And she keeps repeating the wiggle your toe mantra to herself. And something I'll mention here, many, many people commented about this. The allegation is that Tarantino has a foot fetish. And if you watch his films, he always finds ways to get the women to show their feet. So here we have these extended sequences where we see Uma Thurman's feet. It doesn't do anything for me, but you know, yeah. if that's something for you, good for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wasn't I wasn't aware of that um of that speculation until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out and there's a <laughs> lot of foot stuff in that. And then, you know, I read reviews of it and people would remark on it. Uh so I was attuned to it when I was watching this one. And uh yeah, there's a lot of lot of feet in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know fly your freak flag <laughs> <laughs> so she keeps willing herself over and over to wiggle her big toe and in the process she flashes back and gives us narration and we talked before about technically narration in movies is supposed to be bad but mm. a lot of times it's used really well and you know well, sure i have no problem with it here yeah so her narration is about the deadly viper assassination squad this is the four people that showed up to her wedding to kill her. And so we keep seeing this number five, right? She's going after five people. So it's the four members of this squad plus Bill. Bill is the fifth. And the first on her list is Oren Ishii. And we already said that had been crossed off earlier. Uma says in her narration that Oren was easy to find because she became the queen of the Japanese underworld. And then we go to chapter three, the origin of Oren. And this is another just very ballsy, like, I'm just going to do whatever, right? Because this entire chapter is done as anime. Mm -hmm. Although it's, it's, it's more smoothly animated than most anime. Yeah, I, my guess is it was probably rotoscoped, uh, you mm -hmm. know, but in any case, and it's not like 30 seconds. I mean, there are many films that might put a, a small period, right, of animation. This right. is a big chunk of the movie done yeah, in this anime. Is, so. This is the, at least. I'd, at least five minutes long, I'd say. Yeah. So Oren is half Japanese, half Chinese, and she was born on an American military base. So she's got all these different influences. What we see is at age nine, she witnesses the death of her parents at the hands of a Yakuza boss. Now, I got So I had the opportunity to go to Tokyo once, and. The Yakuza show up more often than you would think. So, mm -hmm. first of all, I was there working for Apple. And one of my Apple colleagues, a woman, was kicked out of the fitness center of the hotel because she had tattoo sleeves on her arms. Well, in Japan, a tattoo sleeve on your arms means you are a Yakuza. Mm -hmm. So, they were like, you can't come in here. You're a Yakuza. You can't come in, which was amusing. <laughs> then one of my last nights there, you know, cause I like to experience the real kind of local stuff, right? I want to avoid, I mean, I do do the, the sort of tourist stuff, but yeah. I also want to get deeper than that. Right. Sure. 
So one of my last nights there, like, I'm going to go to a late night ramen place, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's probably 1 a.m. in the morning or something. And I go to this ramen place. And the guy sitting next to me has sleeve tattoos on his arms. <laughs> which, and he's Japanese, which means he's Yakuza. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like, yeah, I don't want to screw with this guy. <laughs> so anyway, Oren's father put up a good fight, but ultimately he was killed. She's hiding under the bed. Her mom is on top of the bed. And the Yakuza boss gets on top of her mom and then puts a sword through her. And it comes through the bed and comes like an inch away from Oren's face. And then on leaving, the Yakuza burned down her place. But she lived. She got away. And to her fortune, it turns out that the Yakuza boss is a pedophile. Not usually something that's good fortune for others. Yeah. (laughs) So at age nine, she's able to get with him and she kills him with a sword through his chest in the bed, basically the exact same way he killed her mother. And his blood sprays all over. And one of the, one of the things about this movie, right, is when people are killed, their blood sprays all over. Oh, (laughs) yeah. It's not just like a little spurting stream. It's like. Yeah, no, it's like, no, we're going to take that and go by 10, right? Times 10. Like, we're just going to splurt blood everywhere. Okay. (laughs) And again, there's, you know, I think it's Tarantino saying, look, this is a movie, right? Yeah. I remember I saw an interview with him with a film critic and she was like oh you know you're influencing these kids etc cetera, etc cetera, and don't you feel bad and he's like it's fun <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what the movie's saying right we're having fun i mean right yeah so and again remembering this is all in anime oren then becomes a top assassin you know she kills people with uh sniper rifles and such then we go back to the present And we're seeing Uma in the back of that truck, and she's still repeating her wiggle mantra to herself. And eventually she gets her big toe to move. (laughs) And then she says, the hard part's over. (laughs) And 13 hours later, she's able to get out of the truck. (laughs) So she's kind of reprogrammed her body. I mean, she still walks a little haltingly after this, but at least she can walk where she couldn't before. Right. So she walks to the front of the truck and gets in and drives out. Now, again, I'm going to say a little unrealistic because it's not like she drives out haltingly. <laughs> she just, <laughs> you know, takes that thing into reverse, turns it around, gets out of there. So she uh, she recovered pretty quickly. But at least oh, yeah, they acknowledge yeah. that she needed some time to recover. And she takes a flight to Okinawa. And we're in Chapter 4, The Man from Okinawa. And one of the things about this flight, and I, again, I'll find it amusing because they use it multiple times in here. The plane is flying in this very, very artificial sky that's like very purple and pink and such. Yeah. And again, it's kind of like, yeah, this is a movie and this is dramatic and we're just going to show you this thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it looks, I mean, color-wise and lighting-wise, it looks real good, but it's also very yeah. obviously not real-life photography. So in Japan... Uma enters a small bar slash restaurant. And I will tell you, having been to Tokyo, this is totally realistic. There are tons and tons of these little tiny places, right, with 10 seats in the restaurant kind of thing. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of them in the uh, Yakuza games, if you ever try those. <laughs> See, I go to Japan, you just play the game. So that's yeah. the difference between us. <laughs> I saved a lot of money that way. That's true. That's true. 
Well, my employer was paying for it. Ah, nice. (laughs) So the place is empty. The owner is reading a newspaper and, you know, obviously bored because the place is empty. And then he sees her and he's impressed by her beauty and kind of engages with her very enthusiastically. Turns out she only knows a couple of words of Japanese, you know. And it was Domo and Arigato. Yeah, Domo and Arigato from the Roboto song, yeah. which is what I know, yeah. <laughs> and the owner yells at his useless assistant in the back to get her some tea. <laughs> the assistant refuses. He says he's watching his soap operas. He tells the owner the tea is already hot. He can get it for himself. Throughout this scene, I'm not going to describe it all, but we get lots of very amusing abuse between the owner and his assistant, which will become even more interesting later. And also, overall, it's a very funny and warm scene. And I thought this was an interesting choice because we've had all this violence already. And so now we have an extended scene that is just people having a good time together. So it's kind of a good, you know, break from the violence. Hmm. On the other hand, you don't know why she's here. And since so far she killed the person she came to, so maybe she's going to kill this guy, the owner. You know, you don't know what's going on, right? But over time, what we learn is that she wants this guy to make her a sword. And first she said she only knew like two words of Japanese. And then she starts speaking fluent Japanese. Yeah. She she also mentions, uh, leading, leading up to the making a sword, she mentions she came here looking for a man named Hanzo or Hattori Hanzo, uh, mm-hmm. which is the name of a sword maker. And that right. name comes up a lot uh, onwards in the movie. You know, everybody's impressed yeah. by his craftsmanship. It's yeah. legendary. Yeah, so it turns out that he is a master sword maker who retired from making killing devices, you know, 20 or 30 years ago because he didn't want to make one more device that killed people. But he shows her the collection of his swords in the upstairs room. And one of the things I thought was interesting here is that she treats these swords like holy objects. I mean, the way she puts out her hands and holds them. I mean, she really, yeah, really respects. Very this. reverential. Yeah. And she says she wants him to make her one, but he says he's retired. And then she says, well, give me one of these. And he refuses. At first, says, I'm not going to sell you one. She said, I'm not asking you to sell me one. I'm asking you to give me one. <laughs> and he refuses until she says the purpose of the sword is for a former student of his. And he immediately knows what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. And he goes over to kind of a misted over window and he traces out the name Bill on the window. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he tells her she can sleep here. And we don't know what this is, means, right? Because he said he doesn't make swords anymore. He can, whatever. And he says, well, it's going to take me a month to make a sword. And in the meantime, you better spend that month practicing. Mm-hmm. So a month passes. Now we see the owner in sort of, you know, formal garb. And his assistant also is next to him. And all their arguing stick is gone, right? The assistant treats him as his master. And very, you know, loyally and assists him in unsheathing this sword. It's the best sword this master has ever produced. And it's in violation of his promise to never produce another killing device. And he gives it to Uma. Uh, and he, uh, he had made his oath. Uh, he, says, uh, he, he says that he, he had made his oath to God uh, not to make any more weapons that could kill people. And uh, he says, and... Uh, 
if you if you see God somewhere in your travels, you can cut him with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the movie is half over. Yeah. And now we're at chapter five, showdown at the house of blue leaves. So we get a voiceover from the bride, or Uma Thurman's character. Uh, oftentimes she's referred to as the bride. Yeah. yeah. Um, at least in, you know, when people talk about the movie. I don't, I don't know. How, I think a couple times they do refer to her as the bride within the movie. But, uh, anyway. She says in voiceover that Oren Ishii is now the crime boss of Tokyo. And we, uh, we get a view of her at a meeting of a crime council, a you know, group of other crime bosses, and she's surrounded by her entourage. Her army is called the Crazy 88. Mm-hmm. Her lieutenant, who is also her lawyer and her best friend, uh, is Sophie Fatel. And Sophie was also taught by Bill. And then another one of her co-workers or henchmen is Gogo Yubari, who is 17 years old. Um, I think she's really, uh, uh, I don't know, there's there's something about her face is just kind of stunning to me that, uh, I mean, it's. That's a superficial point. I, I'm not going to get into your fascination with 17-year-olds, well, but I, I will just say that. I imagine she's more than 17, the actress. Yeah. <laughs> I will just say, again, that Tarantino put a huge percentage of women in this. I mean, literally, most of the baddies in this are women. It's a very, it's pretty unusual. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, uh, and and whatever age the actress is, Gogo is a you know very compelling and very uh, interesting person. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she's most of the time got a very serious expression, an mm. almost sullen expression. And in the voiceover, the bride says that she's uh, she's mad, is uh, an insane mad. And we get a flashback of this real nerdy guy <laughs> hitting on her at a bar. She asks him if he wants to screw her, and he uh, he answers truthfully that he does. And she runs him through with a sword or maybe a katana. And his guts spill all over the place. It's just, you know, again, more, more excessive blood. I think, I think that might be called Grand Guignol or something like that. <laughs> and yeah, part of the deal here is she was like, you wanted to penetrate me, but I penetrated you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, you know, a simple no would have sufficed, I think. <laughs> but, uh, oh, well. And then we find the uh, the other one of uh, Oren's henchmen is Johnny Moe. He's got a little uh, little mask over his eyes, and he's the uh, you know just one of those little masquerade blindfold type things. Uh, he's the head of the Crazy Eight, which is her crime army. So this is a little bit of a flashback to the night that Ishii took over the crime council. And everybody was happy about it, uh, celebrating. Uh, apparently, the uh, the other crime bosses figured that happy days were here again. But one of them, Boss Tanaka, is not happy. And he objects to the perversion of the council. Mm-hmm. Oren calmly asks him to elaborate on Yeah, and, and I mean, he never gets a chance to say, but I think the deal is, I mean, well... 
it's a combination of her being a woman and her being mixed race. Well, right? it's mainly uh, the mostly what he mentions. It is not so much the woman part, but the part the fact that she's part right. Chinese and she's also uh, of American parentage. And when he says explicitly what he's objecting to, Oren immediately chops off his head. Well, the part I like here directorially, right, is they have this huge long table and she jumps onto the table and walks across, but she doesn't just like run across. It's like the geisha kind of thing, right, with the little feet or whatever. She does these little tiny steps all the way across the table and then she faces him and cuts off his head. So it's, it, it just makes it, it's very humorous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and having done that, she stands, you know, stays standing on the table and, uh, she gives a speech to the rest of the crime bosses about um, about what they should uh, expect going forward or how they should comport themselves. She says that she welcomes, and she says this very, very politely and diplomatically, like a uh, the new leader of an organization, which is exactly mm. what she is. She says she welcomes questions about her logic if they're put tactfully or you know, words to that effect. But if you bring up her heritage in a negative way, uh, she will collect your head. <laughs> so he's very <laughs> firm on that point. The bride buys a ticket to Tokyo. And again, we have that very obvious plane against a very richly colored sky effect. It's a, yeah. it's a red sky because it's sunset as she's going to Tokyo. Again, we see the like. There's there's light coming through the windows of the plane as she's sitting in there, and it looks like sunlight. You know, it's probably sunlight imitating floodlights or something like that because it's obviously a set outside the window. But it it still looks good. It's like yeah, it's it's a set, but we're gonna make it look good for a set. <laughs> it's a fun little way to approach it, anyway. And then we get a montage, and uh, we hear Flight of the Bumblebee played on trumpet very hmm. rapidly. Uh, whoever was playing it must have noticed stuff or stuff. And uh, it's also the arrangement with the trumpet is uh, the best thing I could describe it as was 1960s spy rock. <laughs> it's hmm. like a little a little surf rock, but also a little like secret agent man and you know James Bond and that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. good little accompaniment to this montage. We see Ishii's motorcade going to a restaurant. We see the plane coming in for a landing over Tokyo at night. And this is really, uh, this is another set, and it's a big set. It's like a whole town. It's like the outskirts of Tokyo, I guess, because there's no skyscrapers viewable, but it's just a bunch of like two and three story buildings. As far as the eye can see, I'm sure at some point it's like a matte painting in the background, but, uh, but a lot of it is actual physical set of all these miniature buildings. So, you know, it's obviously a set, but again, it looks really good to me. <laughs> I like it. Mm -hmm. Then we see that the bride after landing, she has a, uh, gold motorcycle and this is this is not metallic gold, but it's like uh, when you hear that some college colors are golded blue or whatever. It's like that deep yellow color that's almost got a mm -hmm. tinge of orange in it. So she's got a motorcycle matching helmet and uh, this racing suit, you know, kind of a, a jumpsuit, very sporty looking. That's They're all, all this bright yellow color. 
And uh, she follows Sophie, even pulls up next to Sophie. Sophie's not in the main motorcade for some reason. But Sophie is distracted by her phone. This this is a recurring theme with her, as we'll see. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't uh, she doesn't even notice the bride is there parked in the lane. Although she wouldn't know who she was, right? Because she's wearing a motorcycle helmet uh, with the visor closed. So well, I w- I would think, in terms of being an assassin, I, typically <laughs> they're supposed to have a lot of situational awareness. So. Yeah, yeah, there is this, you know, motorcycle trailing. In yeah. There. But she wouldn't recognize who she was. No, no, she she had a full face helmet too, so that, but, uh, but yeah, just the fact that this uh, person in the matching bike suit and helmet is parked right next to her and looking over at her, you know, some assassins would get a little yep. suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's not, it's not my uh, profession, yeah. so what am I <laughs> Uh, and then we get this flashback of Sophie's phone distracting her at a wedding. Uh, the ringtone, as you mentioned earlier, these are early generation cell phones, and they've got those little uh, robotic ringtones like you had in uh, the early Grand Theft Auto games. You know, and, uh, <laughs> it's uh, Auld Lang Syne is the one that her phone plays. And just as... Sophie's about to kill the bride in the flashback. Her phone rings and distracts her from doing so. One thing I didn't totally get from this is there are five people that Uma Thurman is after, and Sophie was not one of them. And then she shows up in this. I I just, I was a little unclear on what that was all Hmm, about. Yeah, maybe it's because Sophie didn't actually kill her, or I, I don't know. Yeah, why she would have even been there since she wasn't one of the core set of assassins. I mean, I just, you know, yeah. To me, it's an open question. It doesn't really matter ultimately in the film. I didn't understand her connection. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out in volume two. (laughs) So we see Ishii and her crew enter this restaurant. It's It's a big restaurant. It's got two levels. The lower level has a bar and a big dance floor and some tables and stuff. And Ishii and crew are shown to the upper level by two hosts. There's a bald man and an orange robe. It almost looks like a a monk robe or a Krishna robe, Mm. something like that. And there's also a woman in this elegant-looking fur-trimmed coat. And they're both very obsequious. They're they're bowing and scraping, uh, you know, literally bowing constantly to these uh, to these new arrivals. They show them into their room. We see that downstairs, the bride is sitting at the bar, still in her yellow jumpsuit. Mm -hmm. Up in the, up in the party room, uh, we see one of the bodyguards, uh, one of the crazy ADA. He's lying on his back on a table and he's speaking in Japanese and we don't have subtitles, but we get the impression that he's telling a story that's both funny and, uh, kind of salacious. He has a little bit of crotch motion action, yeah, there, as I recall. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie and Oren seem amused, and even even Gogo seems amused. She's got a little bit of a smile. Suddenly, Oren senses something, and she just whips a dart out of nowhere. It's a, She throws it through one of the paper windows of the party room, and it sticks in a wooden column right next to the bride. Yeah, so she heard her made a sound or something. Yeah, I saw a shadow or something yeah. like that. I don't know. 
but she sends Gogo to check up on it. Gogo heads out there, but uh, no one's around that she can see. I mean, I, yeah, there are all kinds of people down on the lower level of the restaurant, but no one's suspicious and no one up here on the, uh, you know, this, this room has kind of like a balcony going around the upper level so you can stand yeah. out there and look down to the lower level. Nobody else is up here with Gogo. Except that we see what she doesn't see, that up on the ceiling, and it's a high ceiling, it's probably, I don't know, 20 feet high maybe, or 15, something like that. Up on the high ceiling, the bride is uh, is clinging up there, you know, using the force of her arms and legs to wedge herself between ceiling beams. I've seen this in many movies, and I doubt oh. it. I don't think you're really... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to be mm-hmm. able to get up to the top of a doorway just with friction, you know, just by planting one, planting my back against one side of the doorway and my feet against the other side. So, yeah, I guess if you're agile enough, and and the bride certainly is <laughs> agile, okay. so I'll I'll buy it. That yeah. is not. I'll take your word for it. Right? That is not the most difficult thing I'm being asked to swallow in this movie. <laughs> so uh Gogo returns into the party. She hasn't found anything suspicious. The bride goes downstairs and she finds a booth to hide in in the women's bathroom. Sophie leaves the party to go to the bathroom, and while she's in there, her phone rings and the ringtone is Old Lang Syne, uh same one she had four mm-hmm. years ago at the wedding. And the bride looks through a crack in the door of the booth where she's hiding. As she sees Sophie talking on the phone, we get this uh, this very alarming-sounding music. And uh, the, the subtitles say it's from Ironside, which was a 70s mm-hmm. detective type mm-hmm. show. In this case, I think the music is trying to convey that uh, it's triggering alarm bells in, in her head or, you know, bringing up adrenaline, you know, feelings of alertness and alarm and all that. So, so Sophie is a bad memory. Mm. In the party room... Uh, one of the guards, one of the crazy 88 guys with the little black masks, notices that the host resembles Charlie Brown. And he does, in fact. He's, uh, he's bald, mm-hmm. and he's got, in- instead of a T-shirt, he's got a-, a robe, but it's orange, and it has this black zigzag stripe going around the center of it, which is the Charlie Brown outfit. So uh, mm-hmm. everybody gets a good laugh out of that. And then they hear a voice down in the main room of the restaurant. The bride is down there calling out Oren Ishii. And uh, she's standing there with Sophie in front of her. And after Oren comes out and several other people come out to see what the ruckus is, the bride chops off Sophie's left arm. And once again, there's tons and tons of blood just spraying all over Hmm. the place. Oh, yeah. She rolls her on the floor, just spraying that blood <laughs> with the bandit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you notice, uh, I don't remember this scene particularly, but there are a couple of scenes where 
the blood gets on the camera and they leave it there. And yeah. I don't know if that was intentional or digital or whatever, but yeah, it's another kind of fourth wall yeah, thing. Like, oh yeah, we have a camera the here. Right? <laughs> yeah. So the bar patrons uh, wisely flee, and uh, Oren says to the bald guy, "Charlie Brown, beat it." <laughs> so hmm. he he follows all the other people from the bar. You know, I, I have to think that was kind of thoughtful of her to, you know, tell him mm, to get out of there. Yeah. You know, this is not civilian business. First, Oren sends Mickey. Uh, he's just one guy. He goes down the stairs to the bride who's waiting at the bottom. Uh, and very quickly, she slices his sword in half with her Hanzo or Hattori Hanzo sword. Uh, cuts through the steel of his sword like it was butter. And so he's dead, and she tosses him into a pool. And this is a, this is a very blue, clear pool uh, that she tosses him into. And it's not going to be that way much longer. <laughs> so three of them now come down the stairs, three of the crazy eight. They come down the stairs. They all attack at once, and she kills them all. Two more come down, and they all die. And, of course, there's, there's a, a lot of good action choreography that goes with this. But if I... If mm -hmm. I tried to annotate all the action that's coming up in the next 10, 15 minutes, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd still be taking notes. So <laughs> this is the abridged uh, description here. Next, Oren sends out Gogo, and she has a metal ball on a chain. It's, a, I guess, a mace. Is there or a morning star? Mm -hmm. No, yeah, a morning star, because a mace is fixed like a club and a morning star is the thing on a chain yeah and and as we'll see she's able to change exactly what it is on the fly yeah <laughs> yeah it has a it has a little uh special 007 style feature <laughs> so this ball is a little bigger than a softball i'd say and it has some uh spikes sticking out of it nothing nothing too dramatic they're actually pretty small spikes maybe a half inch long or something like that as, as Gogo descends the stairs, uh, she talks with the bride. Uh, they know each other by reputation. And the bride says, I, I beg you to walk away. Because knowing that she's still a, a schoolgirl, she doesn't want to uh, uh, be the agent of her demise. But Gogo giggles. It's a very, very fake giggle. Hmm. I mean, deliberately, I think. That's uh, she. She says she wants to see the bride beg better than that. Mm -hmm. They fight. The bride takes a few good hits from that ball. Then she loses her sword too, which is puts at her puts her at a, a pretty big disadvantage. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that uh, the sword should be able to cut through the links of the chain, but uh, I guess it's probably a higher quality chain than the, <laughs> you know, your your random katana that the crazy 88 member might carry so now gogo activates the special feature which is a saw blade it, it's like goes around the whole circumference of the center of the ball yeah and this is one of the things where i'm like why wouldn't you have started with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh first i want to see if you can survive my lesser things and then i'll increase like well no just go in with everything you've got <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's something out on the internet, uh, I don't remember the exact name, but it's called the Evil Overlord List or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> you know, somebody's 
description of all the things he's going to do when he becomes an evil overlord. That's basically just all the mistakes that villains always make. And yeah. <laughs> he just says, nope, yeah. we're not doing that. <laughs> don't have a cape, don't make a monologue. <laughs> so it gets to the point where the bride is being strangled by the chain uh, that connects the ball to the handle. And she is really looking bad. Her eyes are bloodshot as she's choked to death. Yeah. And, uh, but nearby, there's a terrifying, terrifying weapon that was the uh, core of one of the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes, namely the uh, the board with a nail in it. <laughs> Actually, this board has a few nails in it. She puts the nails first through Gogo's foot, and then while Gogo is reacting to that, she then puts the nails through the side of her head, which uh, we don't yeah. actually see that happen, although we get a glimpse of it after yeah, this. Yeah, we get plenty of yeah nails and, in uh, yeah, When we see her eyes bleeding, and uh, it's it's not, you know, it, it looks like it was re- relatively quick as deaths go. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But uh, So one of the things for me about the structure of stuff in this film, so... This particular fight, you know, she comes in, she has all these fights, and and she easily picks off, you know, dozens of people. But then she has this one opponent, and uh, we didn't mention this in this, but she got really hurt, right? I mean, she got sliced and stuff by that thing while they were fighting. And so, to me, the point was, so the first big fight you won easily. Then you have this more intimate fight, and they've really hurt you and cut you down, right? Then you're going to have your third fight with the boss, and you're going to win. And that's not what happens. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a little more what transpires before we get to the big <laughs> Yeah. Oren Ishii is now standing on the balcony outside the party room, and uh, it looks like we're going to that big fight. And they even discuss it mm-hmm. that... Uh, you know, the, the bride and Oren, the Oren essentially says, uh, you thought, you thought it was just going to be you, you, you come up here and finish this off, something like that. Yeah. And the bride says, yeah, that was what I thought. <laughs> but we hear motorcycles arriving, lots of motorcycles. <laughs> and it turns out this is more of the crazy 80. And so we get lots of fighting. Yeah. So, I mean. It's pretty compelling, right? Because you have literally dozens of people just filing into this area already to fight. Oh, over. yeah. I think most of them have masks on, et cetera. Yeah, they've got those um, little uh, masquerade eye masks. Yeah. And one of the things I'll say about this fight, is, and and pretty much everything that goes on here, but is that one of the tropes of martial arts movies, right, is that your enemies only approach you one-on-one, and then you defeat that enemy, and the next one comes. Right. They don't do that cheat in this fight. Right. They'll have five different people attacking her at the same time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, she has to find ways around that. Yeah, that's uh, that happens in video games a lot, too. They get to <laughs> yeah, beat up everybody mm-hmm. in single file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, uh, she gets more overwhelming odds. In fact, the whole thing starts with them surrounding her and just enclosing her tighter and tighter. Until finally, she just has to act. So she takes out the few people nearest her and goes from there. After the fighting has started, the film suddenly changes to black and white. And it's an opportune moment because it happens just as the bride plucks a guy's eye out. 
<laughs> and while it's pretty gory, even in black and white, it would have been considerably more, more so in color. So, uh, right. One thing about this black and white, and I don't know if this was because of my streaming situation, but it also went to kind of very low pixelation. Like, mm-hmm. I, just, it, I, I didn't know. get that in mine. Okay, so that was probably just my problem. So I won't. I, did, uh, I won't make that part of the. I movie. did get very high contrast. Like the white seemed very white, but I think that was. The, right. I think that was by design. Right. And speaking of white, uh, in the black and white mode, even the blood is white. It looks like uh, the <laughs> android blood from the Alien movies. Uh, it's not quite <laughs> as milky, but uh, but it's it's white instead of dark. You know, in black and white, you would think it would be black. But no, it's white. So it's an interesting effect, and it, it does serve to temper the gore to some extent, I think. So after after the change from color to black and white, we just see lots of action, lots of amputations. She cuts off lots of limbs, mm. hands, arms, legs, ankles, heads, you name it. Mm. And during the fight... She sees Oren return to the party room. She goes through some doors and leaves that balcony up there. The bride runs upstairs, and this is after a whole lot of fighting. I mean, I'm really just glossing over because, I mean, it's good action, but, I mean, there's not really a lot to say about it. This guy dies <laughs> and this guy died. Yeah, this guy fought this guy. One interesting thing here, when she runs up the stairs, one of the main bad guys she's about to encounter jumps all the way from the floor oh, up yeah. to the second floor balcony, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that so, was a little suspension of disbelief required there. Yeah, it's just another case of Tarantino saying, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever. Right? I'm going to do all this wire work and people can do this stuff, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah that, that was, was pretty cute. That was just his special power, I guess. Hmm. So uh, she runs upstairs, and the the color returns just a second before the one hostess that we saw, the lady in the nice fur trim coat, she shuts off the power, the main console. So they're all plunged into darkness, and we get a we get a stylized scene here where we had seen the paper wall panels of the party room before, and you know they're they're big grids of rectangles that are you know separated by beams well now these paper panels they're they're blue lit because uh you know you've Mm. got the light from whatever lights coming in from outside the night outside but then the framing of the scene changes and suddenly instead of this low ceilinged balcony with uh with these individual sections of paneling it's just one big grid of these rectangles that's like 20 feet high or something so so it's suddenly become a stylized scene uh, where the whole background is uniform it almost looks like a television wall because you can you know all the all the lines between the paper panels but you don't have the big beam columns between sections anymore and this this scene reminded me of something that we saw a while back. There were a few episodes of The Prisoner where they'd show they'd be doing surveillance on number six and whoever he was talking to, but instead of just showing color video, we would see their silhouettes against a blue background. And this reminds me a lot of that. Uh, I'm, I'm not going mm-hmm. to go so far as to say that it must have been 
inspired by that. But uh, on the other hand, it wouldn't terribly surprise me if that was an influence. <laughs> and one funny thing that I almost didn't notice uh, the first time I watched it, I noticed like the last time it happened. And then when I went faster through it the second time, I checked and it actually happens a few times. There's a lot of friendly fire among the crazy eight as they're fighting in the dark. Mm. They're attacking each other, thinking they're attacking the bride. Right. So if you, if you know that's coming, it's kind of amusing to see. But if you don't know it's coming, then you might very easily miss it. Finally, the lights come on and there's one terrified guy left. The bride, first of all, cuts his sword apart bit by bit. You know, he's, he's holding it up, point upwards. So she chops off the tip. Then she chops off another section, another and another. And finally, he's obviously terrified. He's cowering through the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, when his sword is just down to a nub, he, he holds up his hands to surrender. The bride spanks him with her sword, says something like, uh, this is what you get for messing around with Yakuza, and uh, tells him to go home to his mother, which he, we see him leave, presumably, to his mother. The spanking was another real surprise for me. Again, it was kind of, again, Tarantino saying, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I'm going to do. <laughs> but also, symbolically, he holds up the sword and she cuts it off bit by bit until he submits. Like, okay, I wonder what that means. <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's certainly an uh, emasculatory uh, implication yeah. there, I think. Well, yeah, when you combine that with the spanking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now one more guy comes in, and the bride fights him. They both end up balancing on the railing of that balcony outside the party room. Yeah, and I think he's a bald guy who's been kind of a major opponent character, right? <laughs> so we recognize him. You know, he's like the second-level boss kind of thing. Yeah. I found this stupidly amusing for some reason when... Uh, when they're fighting on the railing, he keeps, it's probably either just some sort of battle grunt or maybe it's some word in Japanese, mm -hmm. but it sounds like he's saying, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, like, like she said something and he couldn't make it out, but, <laughs> but he does it over and over again. And not long though, because uh, she dispatches him pretty rapidly. And he falls down into that pool that we've been seeing uh, now and then through mm. the whole thing. And now the pool is just deep red. So there's there's a few bodies in that pool now. And then we see that the whole main floor of the restaurant is, you know, the dance floor, appropriately enough, is full of corpses now and also moaning wounded people. Yeah. And the bride addresses them all. She says, those of you who are still alive can leave, but... Your limbs have to stay. They belong to me now. So anything she dropped off, she yeah. gets to keep. <laughs> Sophie can't leave. Uh, somehow, Sophie is still alive. She hasn't died from blood loss. Yeah, her massive arm-spreading blood <laughs> loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somehow, she uh, she stuck it out. But before anything happens to Sophie, the bride goes out the back door she meets Oren in a snowy garden. That's a re really very attractive little scene there. Yeah, it's a beautiful location, you know, and it's kind of it's kind of a contrast, right? We've just been in this dance club, mm -hmm. which looked nice, but now we're outside in a very natural space with plants and rocks and 
snow and it, you know it's just a very very Japanese. Oh yeah, it's your very traditional Japanese garden setting. So yeah, very would be very relaxing under other circumstances. <laughs> Oren compliments the bride on her sword. The bride says it's Hattori Hanzo steel. Oren doesn't believe her. Apparently, mm. it's just that hard to obtain. When we saw his stockpile of swords, presumably there were some still out in the world and used, but right. uh, but he had a lot of swords that he held back and just never sold to anybody. But I don't know. I, I, for some reason, I, I probably find the Hattori Hanzo part of this more interesting than than is merited. It's just one of those things that makes me think I'd like to know more about the backstory of all that. Yeah, well, I mean, he is clearly a fascinating guy that we only see a little bit of, yeah. So they get to fighting. Again, we get a little bit of a foot business here with the <laughs> Oren taking off her sandals, even though it means she'll be fighting in the snow in her stockings. They fight, and it doesn't take long at all uh, before the bride. She goes to dodge, and she flubs it a little bit. She's her timing's a little off, and she lets Oren get in too close, and her back's turned to Oren, and uh, she gets her back slashed deeply, uh, the bride's back. Mm -hmm. And that really uh, does some damage to her, and she falls to the ground. And Oren mocks her. She says, silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. Yeah. But the bride... Get up. Even though she just cut down about 100 people. <laughs> That's fine. That's right. Yeah. The bride gets up and she says, attack me with everything you have. And in mm. the course of that attack, the bride manages to injure Oren's leg. And there's not a lot of blood that we can see, but, but she's limping pretty badly as she puts some distance between herself and the bride. And it's bad enough, apparently, that Oren feels the need to apologize for ridiculing the bride just moments ago. Mm. And the bride says, accepted. And then after another not much longer fighting, Oren runs over to the side, to one side of a low fence, you know, and sort of a, they run down the length of the fence until there is no more fence and then they can get back to fighting. And then the bride chops off the top of Oren's head. Yeah, although we don't we don't see that originally, right? Like well, we first, see some hair. Yeah, first, first we see a slash yeah. of blood in the white snow. Uh, and then right. we see I think we see it go flying and it's it's just basically a, a But it's scalp. like a, it's a hair, right? So yeah. she could have just cut off her hair. Yeah, although I think I think I saw I think I saw even the first time I watched it. I think I I guessed that that was a scalp. So you do see a little <laughs> bit of a head mixed in there, but her face is still intact. It's just uh, everything above the face that's in trouble. And her last words, Oren's last words are, that really was a Hattori Hanzo sword. <laughs> so next we see, you know, after the bride uh, leaves the garden, she puts Sophie in the trunk, takes her to the hospital, and she she's not driving the pussy wagon that's back in America. But she puts her in the trunk, <laughs> takes her to the hospital, and there's a little hill next to the hospital, and she just tosses her in the snow and gives her a push, and she rolls down the hill into the 
ambulance parking lot of the hospital where people notice her rolling there. And the next scene we see is Bill visiting Sophie in the hospital. And he, he doesn't seem angry with villains. You never know, even if they don't seem angry, this could very well end up with you uh, getting killed. Yeah, the whole time he's talking to her, you're kind of waiting for him to stab her from the back or whatever. Because, you know, she's facing forward towards him like she's looking in a mirror or something. And and you don't see his face because we've never seen Bill's face. So you just see his hands on her shoulders and you're just waiting for him to do something to (laughs) her. She tells Bill what happened. The bride wanted her to live. The bride told her she wanted her to live for two reasons. One was to interrogate her, get everything that she knew Mm. about Bill. And the other was so that she'd be alive to tell Bill what happened. The bride says, I want him to know what I know. And then she, (laughs) I'm not sure what the rationale for it was, but for some reason it struck me as a memorable moment. She, after she says, I want him to know what I know. Then she repeats it twice. She says, I want him to know. I want him to know. I don't know why that stuck with me, but it seemed memorable. Mm -hmm. So on the plane back to America, again, the plane set back to America, the bride makes her fifth list. I think it's labeled death list five. And that's the next to last scene. The very last scene is in the hospital. And Bill asks Sophie, is she aware that her daughter is still alive. And that's the end. (laughs) And not knowing the next film, it's intriguing because just like the beginning of this film where you see her brains blown out and then she survives, Mm -hmm. You had to say, how could her daughter, who was literally a fetus in her body when she was killed, be alive? Mm, yeah. Well, if she so was, if she her... stayed alive, then her body could keep sustaining the baby. Yeah. <laughs> but where, and then at what point did it go somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> I have many questions for the next uh, movie. Even though we're going to have, you know, lots of commentary later. Just at this point in time, what's your take? What, you know, is this something you would recommend to somebody to watch? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to have some stomach for gore. I mean, most of the gore (laughs) is not nasty kind of gore, but it's just sort of, I mean, well, I mean, it's not like the really disgusting sadistic kind. It's just generic blood Mm. spurgeons. I mean. You've got moments like when that guy's eye gets plucked out, but then that's right when it switches to black and white. So that switch, <laughs> so distracting, it almost, it, right. it softens the impact, I think, of the eye. But I mean, overall, if if somebody likes uh, movies with lots of action or just, uh, just entertaining uh, dialogue, then there's not as much dialogue per minute in this movie is there isn't a lot of Quentin Tarantino's movies. Yeah. Which is a pity because that's what I enjoy most, I think, about his movies hmm. or one of the things I enjoy most about. But overall, yeah, if uh if you if this is your sort of thing, uh, then it's your sort of thing. <laughs> so if you would like this movie, watch then you should watch this yeah, exactly. Movie. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I think it's 
Well, for me, it is worth watching from the perspective that I mentioned from the beginning, which is this is a director in his prime, knowing he's in his prime and saying, you know what? I'm going to break all the rules and I'm going to do whatever I want to (laughs) do. And it's thrilling and it's fun. And I think that is the reason to watch this movie. Now, will that continue over to part two? I have no idea. Join us next week to find out if Kill Bill Volume 2 lives up to Volume Mm -hmm. 1. Oh, I'll just tell you, this past week, for some reason, I, uh, I, I got an idea to search for funny animes uh because you know there's a lot of anime out there and i'm not a big anime buff but i've i've watched a couple that i found entertaining so i thought i'd see well you know the japanese stuff and put a lot of humor and things so i wonder if there are any that are especially funny i find found out there's one called ghost stories that Hmm. released in japan and it had kind of a lackluster sales performance um, and so one of the American companies that does the dubbing for our audiences, um, they were working on some kind of deal with this company and they said, oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll throw in this series too. Uh, it wasn't a big hit, but maybe you guys can do something with it. So they gave them a very, um, unprecedentedly loose, uh, contract where mm-hmm. they had to keep the character names and the basic storyline, you know, like there's ghosts in each episode and they have to be. excuse me they have to be named the same and they have to be defeated in the same way and all that but beyond that the uh the writers uh, american writers had carte blanche to just you know do whatever they wanted with the dub um Mm. so this writer uh decided to have some fun with it and he told the actors if they wanted to do their own ad libs you know as long Mm. as it matched the mouth flaps Right, right The first episode is they put a few jokes in, but it's mostly fairly faithful, you know, dialogue wise. Um, but with each episode, they got more crazy and I've watched like the first four or five episodes so far and already it's ramping up on the, uh, on the humor and it's really, uh, Hmm. pretty entertaining. What's it called? Ghost stories. I I ordered Yeah, you now at least the first few episodes are on daily motion and they didn't have the heads either. Um, but I went ahead and ordered the Blu-ray set of it. Um, and like I said, I'm maybe four or five into it now and I'm getting okay. a kick out of it. It's very, uh, um, it's just kind of, a chaotic, uh, and there's a lot of pop culture references in it. And there's also a lot of uh, stuff that, uh, today's to today's ears is a lot more offensive than it was even. <laughs> of course. Uh, but so, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> Similar to that, I'll mention, I don't know much about anime. I'd like to know more. I think, you know, I'm sure it's, it's, there's a lot there that would be worth delving into. Um, there's a series called Robotech and I, I oh, yeah, the heard DVDs of, of the whole series. Yeah. And it's really good. It's, it's a very in-depth science fiction story you know, where it just develops over dozens and dozens of episodes and DVDs and all that. And um, 
very in-depth. And I, I've still only gotten into the first kind of 10 or 20 episodes. But, uh, yeah, you have these things that just have all of this, you know, background material and story arcs and everything that are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's impressive. And now, of course, that we're dealing with this stop motion stuff, whenever I watch something like this, I'm all the more impressed because there's so much freaking work involved in, oh, yeah. in, in every second <laughs> of that stuff. Okay, so um, we're ready. I'll get started here.